Welcome to Consensus Conversations 2022, presented by the Oak Network, live here from Austin, Texas. Hi, I'm Michelle Musso, producer at Coindesk, and here with me is our very own managing editor of markets, Brad Cowan, chief insights columnist, David Z. Morris, and former managing editor of podcast, still host of Markets Daily and CEO of 330.ai, Adam B. Levine. Uh, hi guys, how are we doing today? Oh, hey, Michelle. Hi Michelle. All right, now this is our, our day three for Consensus 2022. However, it's our second day for this show, particularly right now in the, in the conference. Now Brad, I'm going to pitch this to you. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of different experiences, and I feel a different vibe in here from yesterday, personally. However, there's, there's so much excitement. I went over to the main stage and was listening to Edward Snowden speaking on uh, free money. But what in particular is your focus been yesterday and today? What have you been paying attention to? In my role, I've had lots of different things that I've had to do. I had to host the track, and I, I did a panel the other day, and I did TV this morning. But, you know, I, I, I would say my personal experience, I got in, I started covering crypto in 2019 after almost 20 years covering traditional finance. And so I had a lot to learn. In fact, we were just talking, Adam and I did some of the early Markets Daily podcast pilots, and, and I learned so much from Adam during that time. And then, you know, over the past three years, you learn a lot. You learn a lot every single day. You know, people talk about how one year in crypto is seven years, you know, everywhere else. And so by that by that metric, I have 21 years of experience uh, covering crypto. So you look great, by the way. Brad. <laughs> you have an age a day. You come here and you kind of see a lot of it all in one place. You see a lot of people that you've seen quoted in different places or their, you know, sources of, of my colleagues, you know, but I haven't personally been in the room with them. Like Michael Novogratz, I had not been in the room with him. Joe Lubin of Ethereum, you know, sitting in that session and kind of hearing how he was grilled and Charles Hoskinson was just, you know, talking to Adam a few minutes ago. Uh, and you can stop by the Cardano booth and see all the people gathered around him. And yeah, that was pretty cool. So it's been interesting to kind of see it all in one place. And if I could riff on that for just a second, because I don't think we did discuss this yesterday, which is just, you know, especially for us as journalists, but in general for anybody who cares about this stuff, and especially for people on the business side, you can't overstate the importance of that aspect of just being able to get in the room, see people face to face. I mean, we talk a lot about everything moving online, and obviously we have over the last couple of years largely, but regardless of some of the rhetoric, everything is about trust here, and you want to work with people who you know and who you know their character, and being able to talk to them face to face is, is really key to that. It's absolutely true. I didn't even recognize Brad when he walked up here today. I was like, excuse me, sir? He's like, I recognize you, Michelle. I just asked you if I could leave my bag I was here. like, who is this guy leaving his bag here? So so my biggest uh, highlight from today so far, I have to say, is the Chainalysis socks. <laughs> these nice yeah. blue and orange socks. They are still available, David, if you can make your way over there. I actually there. will get some. because I, I got team some, socks. I got some Masari socks. Those were my only uh, swag. You so know, far. like, I, you know, to be, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something with you. I never wear socks or shoes that require socks unless I'm at a conference. And so I collect conference socks. And these, these are pretty nice. These Everybody has their nice. thing. Exactly. So anyways, no, it's been, again, like it's been uh, just kind of wild seeing all of this. And the other thing that's been interesting about it to me is, you know, like there have been all of these concerts and right, like all of this cultural stuff that's happened kind of beyond I have not that. seen a single one. <laughs> 
We no, do other things. <laughs> there's, there's been a lot of stuff to do for sure. So I think again, what we're going to kind of talk about today, rather than focus too much in on the conference, which we talked about yesterday, uh, is again, like get to kind of some topics in the news. Well, we do want to talk about Novogratz, I think. Yeah, first. yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. So Brad, I think you, you've got this story. What's, what's going on here? Well, I just sat through his session yesterday and... You know, I mean, he's on CNBC all the time, so my that was kind of my instinct that he was maybe a little overexposed. I've heard a lot, you know, but uh, obviously he's been in the news lately because of the Luna disaster, and he was so famously had his Luna tattoo, and he was asked by Zach Seward, our colleague, some pretty direct questions about his involvement there and what the lessons were. I gave him a lot of credit for being pretty straight on that. I mean, best he can. I think the joke was he's he's not going to get rid of his tattoo because he wants to preserve some humility going into the next cycle. But he made the analogy that I thought was interesting, which is, you know, this this industry is exploding and there's going to be a lot of things that go right and a lot of things that go wrong. And he made the analogy of Luna to Pets.com, mm-hmm. right? And how he was making the point a lot of people invested in Pets.com. You know, and he, he said, I didn't, I haven't checked this, but he said Jeff Bezos was a big investor in Pets.com, you know, and so, and then Dan Moorhead, who was also on the panel, made the point that, you know, maybe Pets.com, like ordering dog food on the internet, it sounds kind of normal now, but back then, it just, the market wasn't there. So, you know, you're going to have a lot of disasters along the way, but anyway, I thought that was pretty interesting. He yeah. kept a brave face. So I have a lot of feelings about this. I've done a ton of writing about Luna. I, I tweeted something a few weeks ago that went fairly viral, just questioning whether Novogratz would continue to have a career. And the reason that I have that strong of a feeling is I get that there is a reason to respect him for directing it or, or addressing it directly and being open about it. But I actually, I feel like the Pets.com comparison might itself be a bit of an evasion because, and I think people might not really know this, but Galaxy made money off of Luna. Galaxy got out before it crashed. And so when he's saying, oh, we got this one wrong, I'm not sure they actually got it wrong. What if they got it right and did exactly what they were planning on doing? Because the Pets.com thing is misleading for another reason, which is he's saying that, but that would only be true if Pets.com's open and public business model is we're going to give away dog food for free and then we're going to figure out later how to make that into a business. I mean, it's not an exact equivalence, but... Luna was a fundamentally broken model totally from the beginning. This argument that like, oh, we're just experimenting, things are gonna fail, things might be unstable. I mean, I just don't think you can apply it in this case because the model was so broken that if you have people looking at that and they're sincerely saying, we're gonna invest in this for the long term, that's broken. If their real goal was to buy it and then get out, they succeeded. And in that case, I don't think his framing is honest. Well, I mean, that's super interesting about Luna. And I mean, in general, I would trust David Morris's opinions over my own. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, Luna, to the point, like it was the whole thing was propped up by the anchor, which was there was money going into that, basically just subsidizing that. And I mean, I think that's another lesson of this conference is it is easy to be seduced by the marketing. There's so much money and it is great marketing. You know, and there's a lot that you don't really get until you start to dig. Well, I mean, ultimately what we're talking about here really is kind of next level yield farming, right? 
We're talking about a system, again, you see yield farming. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, ta we're talking about a system here. There are lots of reasons why people want algorithmic stablecoins to work, and those are reasonable reasons to want that. But the reality is, is that when you have these systems that are built on game theory, then when the game theory goes in your favor, then everything is great. But when it turns against you, then you get these cascades like we did see in Tether. And again, it's worth noting that, you know, the Luna Foundation- Sorry, not Tether. Sorry, not Tether, Tara. thank you. Tara. Tara. <laughs> UST, thank Oops. you, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thanks uh, for the correction. Yeah, but it's worth noting that uh, the Luna Foundation Guard had more than $3 billion worth of Bitcoin and significant still other entirely funds. still know where it went. Well, yeah, but again, like, it would not surprise me at all if the market simply ate it as it kind of ground through all of that Most resistance. Of it. And it didn't even slow it down very much, right? That's the thing about it, is that when you're looking at these algorithmic stablecoins, like, to the extent that they've solved these perhaps impossible to solve problems, like, then they're going to work. But otherwise, you're looking at what is effectively some type of self-propelling machine. Yeah, exactly. Machine. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like... For those who don't know, is uh, visibly possible. impossible. Yeah, exactly. And the thing of it is, is that people like Mike Novogratz understand that. And they understand that when you're looking at those types of systems, again, back to the marketing point, like, if the marketing is good, and if it starts to get the narrative behind it, and especially if you can develop that cult of personality that a lot of the really successful crypto projects sort of wind up building up, which acts as almost a buffer against anything they do and creates this sort of defensive, you know, army of like supporters who are heavily invested in the project and who are going to do anything they can, not just to, to kind of lift it up, but to, to actively, in many cases, attack people who call into question some of these, these things. That's the challenge around it, is that there are just like so many little bubbles, and when these bubbles get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, at a certain point, they can't get bigger. And then you have this problem of, well, if they're not getting bigger, they're going to get smaller, and this creates these issues. And, and I think that that point about the cult of personality and the army of defenders may have been the real investment thesis. I think that they were probably investing in Doquan and his Elon Musk-like yeah. uh, personality. And you know, it's increasingly becoming clear that that was a giant mistake. There's a certain audacity that comes from being somebody who creates a project that has themselves at the center of a cult of personality, right? There's a certain type of person that seems to be the right kind of suited for that. And on the one hand, it seems like they're very well suited to kind of lead these things, but it corrodes the project, right. it, it seems to because me. Because we're, we're getting now inside reports that, you know, Do Kwan was a very autocratic personality, and even people within the project were apparently for a long period of time telling him that it was unsustainable, and he would literally, like, put headphones in and not listen to them while he was, while they were saying, this is, you know, un yeah. unvalidated Indeed. reports. Indeed, alleged. <laughs> um, uh, you know, this is what we're seeing. So the thing I was going to say, though, and we can't spend all this time talking about Luna, but there has been a, I think, dangerous amount of chatter to the effect that if you make a Ponzi that works, it's actually not a Ponzi anymore. Um, and, and I think that idea may have underpinned a lot of the thinking around Luna, that like, if we can just get enough velocity, I mean, it, explicitly they said, you know, we're just looking to get enough philosophy so that this totally unbacked thing eventually gains value. And that's just an argument that, I mean, it's wishful thinking and it, it will never it's a beautiful story. work that way. Well, yeah. you know, one of the things that I was thinking about was if you went back, let's say late 2021, could anybody have predicted that Terra would be the story of 2022? I, I mean, it's just, to your point, Adam, these things come out of nowhere. And, and I just pulled up this quote from Novogratz. He says, w w with your caveats <laughs> acknowledged, when ecosystems go real fast, there's a reason for that, right? I mean, these things come, they explode in, into, onto our radar, and then 
they explode. Well, and and to know? be clear, the reason for that is that retail has access to all of these things and something becomes a meme and then the venture capitalists that hold the token sell it into that meme. Right, that's what right, right. <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about Terra is that my perception, again, following up on our conversation yesterday a little bit, is that regulators in the United States and around the world are looking for reasons, right? They're looking for plausible reasons to get involved, and I mean, again, whenever you have these projects that have these types of characteristics and they blow up so big, and then they implode on themselves as a result of a variety of factors, you know, I mean, like that kind of creates these openings to then have people come in and say, oh, hey, we have to do this because of this. But again, it's not just going to apply to projects that are like what, what happened here with UST. It'll apply much more broadly than that. And again, my, I, I, I give very little sort of good faith credit to regulators in these cases, my sense is that that's very intentional. And when we're looking at, you know, whether it's this one or there was another story the other week about uh, Nate Chastain, uh, former executive over at OpenSea, who has been charged with insider trading by the Department of Justice under a very interesting statute, actually, not under SEC insider trading statute, but actually under a wire fraud statute. That's something of a novel argument. These are kind of the moments where the individual incident almost doesn't matter to the industry because the industry is so large and has so much going on, but they're used as sort of pivot points for people who would like to change the industry yeah. who are outside of it. And so again, like that's what I see here. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And honestly, it's another reason to dish out some, some hits to people like Novogratz and, and Coinbase Ventures who also were behind backing Luna because this does have long-term negative consequences yeah. when these unsustainable projects get backed. So this is not, I mean, I'm sure this is being discussed at the conference, but not something I can peg directly, but it is some ongoing, very important, interesting news. Um, Ethereum is is crashing very hard right now. I think we've lost about 12% mm -hmm. in the last 24 hours, and um, I haven't had time to completely hash out all of the ins and outs, but it definitely appears to be linked to another unsustainable project bringing down other markets, uh, this thing called Celsius. Mm. That um, Brad, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but. I'm familiar with Celsius, but I honestly have missed this latest story. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to stick to broad outlines here because it is very complex and I haven't been fully read in, but basically Celsius appears to be insolvent, um, but they are also uh, major holders of staked ETH in the Lido pool, which is essentially a, a step towards the Ethereum 2 merge to proof of stake. These staked ETH tokens are basically bonds. I've had to like try and make this argument a few times, but they're totally different from Luna. It's not a synthetic asset. There is no right. balancing mechanism. It's just a bond that will mature whenever ETH 2 launches, and then you can trade in your staked ETH for Ether. So there is a natural premium because there's a time delay to being able to redeem these things. Uh -huh. But because for, for complex reasons having to do I don't think there's a curve pool involved, but basically there's a liquidity pool that's linked to Lido, and because Curve is insolvent because they've lost tens of millions of dollars to hacks and have also had an unsustainable business model, allegedly, they are selling off a lot of their huge staked ETH portfolio, and that is creating a big disconnect between staked ETH and ETH prices, which actually is a huge profit possibility, I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Alameda may be buying a lot of it, but for now it is causing some real uh, chaos in the market. Well, um, so all of this comes off of, again, like the continued delay of the switchover, you know, the purported switchover, from the ETH1 proof of work consensus mechanism to the ETH2 proof of stake consensus mechanism. And I think we just saw that uh, they're no longer expecting it in June, or did they push it again? I think we already saw it wasn't going to happen in June. 
And yeah, uh, I'm not actually up yeah, to date. Yeah, I think the last date I heard was maybe August. I think that came out of Vitalik's a couple of weeks ago. Uh, August is the last official, but there have been some reports about people speculating when it's going to happen. But on the other right. hand, they, yeah. did, they successfully merged the Robson testnet a couple days ago. Um, so, I mean, there have been some positive signs as well. Uh -huh. I mean, obviously, the, uh, the staked ETH is basically along on the, exactly. the, the merge. Mm -hmm. But at this point, it's becoming a, an increasingly big, long opportunity because it's dropping way below ETH, even at current prices. Well, um, so. I mean, it, it goes back to all of these things are being invented in real time, right? So staked ETH was the solution to getting people liquidity on their staked ether, right? Right, And so, and you could then take that token and do all kinds of whatever you want with it. You could have your right. stake and eat it too, right? Yeah. And I mean, there have been reports, at, our reporter Chris Shondor did a story June 2nd, it just seems like months ago, but it was like yeah. last week. Last week yeah. <laughs> but the staked ether protocol, the Lido protocol specifically was occupying a lot of that staked ETH. And it was becoming, you know, again, yeah. th these are smaller systems and, but if you have a you know have too much a of a critical of mass, uh, you know then then that becomes a systemic threat for these smaller ecosystems. Well, really, what so. we're talking about there is bridge services, right? Like that's well, what I am actually unclear whether Lido is technically a bridge. Well, 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 well. So let me back that up. So there's more than one way to define a bridge. Right. So the kind of modern thinking about a bridge has to do with bridging between two different blockchains, right? What I'm actually talking about is a simplification service. It's a service that takes something that's complex, that is decentralized for the most part, and as a service, allows it to be easier by centralizing yeah. it, right? Yeah. And really that's what we've seen. We've seen this over and over and over again. You look back at the early days of Bitcoin, of Bitcoin in general, and the vast majority of Bitcoin, or not the majority, but a significant proportion of Bitcoin was actually held within Mt. Gox. And it was held within Mt. Gox because Mt. Gox was effectively a bridging service, not yeah, and, between and, two and blockchains. And during that period also, crucially, and even until much more recently, because this is how Sam Bankman-Fried made all his money, yeah. like if you think of it that way, then these exchanges, like there are arbitrage opportunities between the exchanges right. in the same sense that there is now an arbitrage opportunity between staked ETH and ETH, right. because there is some risk there because they exist in, in different sort of sub-environments. So, so it doesn't surprise me that we see two things. One, there's a problem with this centralized service that, that you know, is providing service. And two, that that centralized service became a huge part of the overall kind of ecosystem because it offered this easier solution. And I mean- Not just it, easier, but more potentially profitable. Well, too. yeah, I mean, again, like what it did is it basically simplified, like you didn't need to have as much capital to put in, you didn't need to do the technical stuff yourself, and they, again, would give you back a token that would represent the claim on that that's in there. Wait, am I getting right. that wrong? That's right, yeah, yeah. that's well, right. Going back to, to David's point, I mean, you're right. It, there is some aspect of the bet of holding staked ether that is a bet on the timing of, of the merge, right? right. And, and so, but I mean, I think it highlights, again, there's things that look alike, but they're not alike, right? Like this looks like a dollar, right? but it's not, it's really just a stable coin. It is yeah. not a dollar, you know? This looks like ether, but it's not. It's a token called STE, yeah. you know? Yeah, but I mean, it, the takeaway that I would have from that is that you actually have to just know the differences, right? Because yeah, right. Luna claiming to be a dollar and staked ETH claiming to be ETH are just not the same thing. Because there was nothing, I mean, well, we could go back around to the beginning of our previous conversation. I mean, the, but it is kind of the same thing, right? Which is just some crypto person developed this and made this 
happen. So yeah. Right, but I mean, it's a financial product with a specific structure, right? And you have to know the specific structure of the finance. I mean, every financial product is just a Absolutely. claim on something else, <laughs> right. right? So right, it was um, except for Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, true. Ma Matthew um, Graham of Sino Capital was on uh, TV this morning, and he was just talking about, yeah, you're seeing the complexity really creep into crypto. I mean, this is like exactly what Wall Street does, right? Which is the hypothecation and the rehypothecation and the structured finance, and this goes into that, and this goes into that, and pretty soon you're holding a, a super senior, you know. CDO uh, mezzanine tranche of yeah. subprime mortgages. I mean, to be frank, the scary difference is that, you know, these are not professionals making these decisions. And I mean, I am, point. I am very mixed in my sentiment around that because obviously one of the promises of crypto is that with this direct retail access, you democratize the potential for gains on certain things. But at the same time, I mean, we probably have our own impressionistic takes on what the percentage is, right? But there are a certain percentage of things that are real and promising and interesting, and a certain percentage that simply aren't. Um, and that's always gonna be the case in any market, but it seems particularly risky when you have such exposure to, to retail investors. You could even, with this, I'm not the biggest Warren Buffett fan, but I mean, he is kind of famous for the quote, whether, I don't know if he's if it's his quote, but he used a lot, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming with a swimsuit, right? right? Yeah, and right. that is what kind of, probably what we're seeing a little oh, bit entirely, is the Fed yeah. is like sucking out all this liquidity and mm. that's just like white out for everything goes wrong, you know, when it's there. And when it's gone, you things are gonna happen. Yeah. And that actually might be a transition to touch on relatively briefly one other topic, which yeah. was Brian Armstrong at Coinbase. I think it, yesterday we, found out that there was a big petition being circulated among Coinbase, written by a Coinbase employee and circulated among Coinbase employees seeking signatures for a vote of no confidence in management, essentially, based on things like their recent rescinding of job offers. And the thing that I wanted to connect it to is this point about the Fed, where, you know, not only did crypto and equity markets start going down, what is it now, seven months ago, but the Fed has had its interest rate schedule pretty clear for, I mean, you probably know better than I do, but this really started like six, six or eight months ago too, right? Like they've been signaling. And so a complaint from Coinbase employees is that management is not, you know, doing the, the right thing basically on a couple fronts. And one of the big ones there is like, we are entering a, a higher interest rate environment. These sudden like firings and, and halts and withdrawals of of job offers seems to show that they were just not paying attention at all to that. Then I think this morning uh, Armstrong <laughs> issued a series of tweets basically saying that the person uh, who wrote the petition will be fired if yeah. they're found out, which yeah, is just another in a long string of amazing, amazing HR decisions by Coindesk. I'll put it that way. I think that's Coinbase, a Coinbase. Coinbase. <laughs> Coindesk <laughs> HR is awesome. <laughs> That is such a great point that I had not thought of is just, okay, you have the world's largest crypto exchange and they made all these job offers to people. They expanded by something like 300 or more percent over the last year. Yeah. You know, it's not that they knew it was going to happen in the market, but they didn't 
they weren't. It was like they weren't aware of the they risk. They weren't aware of the risk, and so and we know how hard it is to keep really good crypto people at CoinDesk. Like everybody's poaching our people all the time, and so. I mean, if you develop a bad reputation at HR, you're I mean, screwed. I hadn't even thought about yeah, that, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, my God, the talent pipeline is tight enough as it is. Coinbase yeah. is going to have a hard time going forward. All of that can be true, and it still can be a valid position, right? <laughs> I think that, again... Well, I, I should be clear. I don't yeah. think he's wrong, actually. Like, his, okay. points <laughs> about, his points about, like, putting internal dissent out on the table is valid, except he hired all those people. He built the team. So when there is dissent within a team so bad that somebody wants to go public, that's not the individual's fault. That's the person who built the team not having done a good enough job of instilling the sense of collective common cause and loyalty and belief that what you're doing Listening to is feedback. Right. I mean, I'm not actually... Feedback. I mean, if somebody had to important. go public with this, yeah. how much did happen internally first? Like how much got past HR or they put a stop to it or they didn't want to hear it or listen to it? Well, so I'm not even it's implying important. that they... Like, I, I actually have no opinion about the actual comments that were made, the petition, anything like that. But the reality of it is, is that, again, like there, there's this perception, right, that people who run these companies are really freaking smart. Right, and they really know what they're well, talking about. I mean, that's why I'm making this point. <laughs> I, I, I mean, but, the, but, the, but I think that is the point. That is the I'll point. Is that, is that all of this stuff, right? Like nobody knows what's going to happen. Mike Novogratz, right? Like these people are constantly scrambling to put stuff out in front of people that they think is going to happen, and then pulling it back in when turns out that actually isn't how it went at all. How many you know predictions have we seen? Bitcoin's going to be at a million dollars in three years. Bitcoin, like, nobody knows, right? Like, and yet because of their track record in other areas or just because again like sometimes you can even be successful just because you're in the right place in the right time and you happen to get lucky right like it's not to say that that's all entrepreneurial uh, you know success but it is to say that like there's a significant component of that and so we get this kind of you know like the amount of money that a person has behind you know next to their net worth equals their kind of rough intelligence score because they must have been smart to get that much money but it just doesn't work like that a lot of the time so yeah. lucky don't follow I mean, leaders, check your parking Right place meters. at the right exactly. time. <laughs> Even so, within a company, again, like if you don't like the way that things are going and you can't get change from the inside, you know, by using the processes that are available to you, that's a sign that you really should go and work someplace where you can exactly. And, and to be fair, like anybody at Coinbase right now probably would not have any issue finding a job. Exactly. But at the same time, I think somebody I saw made the point that people go work for a company whose mission they believe in yeah. at the time that they're hired. And it is totally valid if you know you feel that leadership itself has lost sight of the vision that you were interested in when you were hired and you still want the organization to I mean, do that. But at what point do you just jump ship, take yourself out of the equation well, at yeah. that point? I, I mean, mean, I know I, you believe I, in the company, but what, at what point do you just go, hey, you know what, this isn't good for me. It's not healthy. I'm going to go somewhere else. Maybe I have a better opportunity. Well, and tailing on to that again, like we saw over last week, I think, an interesting series of events at the Washington Post that sort of took this, you know, like coming out of the corporate environment and into public and nothing good happens when that happens. So again, like it may feel like it's a good move, but it's not. I mean, like I can't imagine a company actually, you know, knuckling under and and doing anything that was sort of instantiated in that way because the consequences in terms of the ability to govern from inside the company would be so dire. You would have set a precedent that basically says that if you're unhappy with what we're doing and we're not going to change it because we disagree with you, that right. you just go public. I mean, like, it's, it's completely destructive. I mean, that's all that totally correct, and yet Armstrong's public response 
was a giant screw up. Armstrong, I actually find it seems it, like an on goal for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I find I find the entire thing highly amusing because again, Armstrong is an early uh, cryptocurrency advocate, right? Like he uh, had enough foresight to create an exchange and to focus on kind of a legal use case at a time when nobody was focused on kind of focusing on legal use cases, right? And he has always been like this. This is not different. What's different is that the scale of the company continues to go up and up and up. And now, as a publicly traded entity, there's obviously a lot of uh, very interesting uh, fallout that comes from that. I, I think he really needs, this isn't, isn't a direct comparison, but you know he needs like a Sheryl Sandberg, but for HR. I mean, uh -huh. Sandberg came in and took care of Facebook sales. Coinbase needs the same kind of help from some like number two to handle political stuff, right. I guess you could say. Yeah. Because he just does not have the touch. And I mean, I don't know if their team their comms team like vetted this tweet thread before it went out, but <laughs> it seems uh, like, boy. I mean like to hey, the extent that they boy. did. Hey, where have we heard this story before? <laughs> to the extent that they did though, he picked the comms team, right? Like you I mean, build, that's you, true too. you build yeah. the company, you know, that you want. But I, again, like it wouldn't surprise me at all if this was just his perspective. He seems like, you know, if the fight goes public, then he's a fighter. I mean, that's valid. The problem though, is that now he's a public company. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it will be increasingly interesting to see, especially the earliest companies in the space who have kind of the most ideological base and the sort of, you know, like foundation of this stuff as they become public companies, whether they adopt to that sort of persona or whether they just keep doing it the way that they're doing it. Because again, it doesn't really matter what happens to, you know, to but Coinbase to But also not to, to beat a dead horse, but like, you can look at a, a non-public company, but still very comparable, Kraken, who, you know, that's an actual, per I mean, Jesse Powell yeah. person, to put it bluntly, I believe actually has values. I mean, I, I think Brian Armstrong probably has some values, but I think the main one is making money. Yeah, on the other hand, to distinguish from the prior episode where he came out and basically said, we're going to be like 100% political neutral, we're not going to adopt in our internal management, we're not going to adopt a lot of political stances. This is just sort of clumsy management. I think. You know, you made job offers to people oh, who yeah. you thought would be good employees. Not a good look. And then you turned around and, and then kicked them to the curb. Right. And that's, again, why it's so great to work at Coindesk, is that you have to have faith in the people that you hire. I'm not going to get this right. It was either like uh, Martin Scorsese or some other great director who's well-known for basically not directing, I think it's not Scorsese, but maybe some like Truffaut or something. I, I'm not going to get it right, but he's very famous for giving no directions to the actual actors. And several times people have talked about like, I did the scene, he said nothing, he said cut, we moved on, and I was, I, I was so confused. I said, do you have any feedback? Is there anything you want me to do with my performance? And he said, I directed you when I chose you for this role. Right. And... I, maybe it was Clint Eastwood even, oh. um, but but like that's the attitude that as a manager you have to have. Yeah, I, I'll just tag on to that. I mean, so like I, I view that same thing as a question of instincts, right? You always want to hire people who have the instincts that are going to align with the thing that you want them to do anyways, because to the extent that there's a divergence between that is to the extent that you have to constantly, very high touch micromanagement exactly. in some cases. So yeah, no, it's absolutely critical as far as those hiring decisions are concerned. But again, 
you know, we're on the outside looking in, kibitzing. <laughs> it is a little bit easier. <laughs> hey, that's why we're in the media. Exactly. That's why we're in the glass booth. <laughs> okay, terrific. We wrap it up. Absolutely. If unless you have more things you would like to talk about, because the two of you can roll all day. It's <laughs> I guess I would just throw out two like quick things. One is that um, I had an. Um, I don't know when exactly we're going to release video or how people who aren't registered might be able to view it, but um, I had an amazing conversation yesterday with Chris Gabriel. Uh, who is the head of the YouTube channel Meme Analysis. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about some very weird stuff and uh, anybody who's interested in memetics and magic and uh, he had some commentary on how to design a good meme. That was my favorite thing that I did yesterday. Cool. What about you, Adam? Anything that you experienced yesterday, oh, talked about? Yesterday, yesterday, I, I think my favorite thing was lunch. Uh, <laughs> but it was only my favorite thing <laughs> because I've been meeting so many people who I have not had a chance to meet in person. I worked for Coindesk for three years, right? And I never met anybody in person that entire time because it was entirely over sort of the lockdown period and all the protections and stuff like that. So that's really been, it's been utterly uh, magical, feels like a terrible word to say, but that's really what it is, is it's been, it's quite an experience just getting to meet everybody who I've had all these, you know, remote relationships with. And that's true for Coindesk folks, but it's also true for, you know, I've seen so many people here from the first Bitcoin conference that I went to in 2013, right? And it just feels like, like so again, like that's that's been kind of the most magical part about this for me. Yeah, yeah I would and have to agree with that. You know, that. we didn't really get too deep into it, but maybe we could close with a little bit more from Brad about like, this is your first consensus. I was like, just going to ask him that if Actually, you've been any before. Actually, my first consensus too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was involved in the virtual consensus uh, that we did the past two years, but different. it was very different because I was just sitting on my butt in yeah. front of my computer <laughs> in my basement here in Austin, you know. A lot and, less hugs. And, like and, and there were actually Aaron, well, that was a different, but you know, uh, you go into these virtual green rooms and somebody, you know, you have to make sure your AirPods are working. And here it was comforting. I, there's like somebody who's sticking their hand up my shirt with <laughs> a microphone on. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I have a human being miking me up. Uh, and then you see you're, you're on, you're there with people and you can really see their reactions and their body language. And because that, I mean, let's be honest, like, that is a huge part of communication, of how humans communicate with our faces and our body language. And I mean, often that's misinterpreted, right? But it's still messages being sent and messages being received. And boy, so, there are yeah. some people here who need the exposure to learn that and the art of interpersonal <laughs> <Of> interaction. <laughs> a little bit of interaction. I know this is the first time I've met you. Oh, yeah, You've been no. in my home technically, visually through Zoom, and I've been in yours. <laughs> I've seen your cat, but we actually get to, to meet each other. So yeah. this is very exciting. See how tall everybody is. Yeah, I, that's true. That's yeah, true. That's, 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 that's very the true. Key. That's the key. Well, I really appreciate uh, you guys speaking with us today and being able to sit here with you and meet you all. and have this experience. So uh, I guess this is going to be the end of our Consensus 2022, the conversations here Woo! at yeah. Coindesk. So that has been Consensus Conversations 2022 provided by the Oak Network live here in Austin, Texas. I've been with Adam B. Levine, Brad Cowan, David Z. Morris, and I am Michelle Musso. Thanks for joining us and bye-bye. Thanks, Michelle.